to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. That is one of my favorite scripture readers, mostly because she's my kid, so... You know, I, I'm, I'm partial, not that I don't like anybody else who reads scripture here, but I am partial to her. So thank you, Lily, for, uh, for reading this morning. Uh, at Study on the Hill, we have a very high value on God's word. We believe it is inerrant, it is uh, sufficient, it is authoritative to teach us how we are called to live. Um, and as we do that, we submit our lives to it. We, we come each week and we say, this is the word of the Lord. We're asking God to shape us to his word each Sunday. And so we come underneath that. Uh, again, uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here. So glad Glad that you're here. Um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Uh, the gospel is good news uh, that we were once separated from God because of our sin and our choices. And Jesus came and did everything necessary to bring us into a relationship with God, paying for our sins on the cross, dying the death we deserve, being raised, or, uh, living the life we couldn't, and then being raised again to new life. I got this a little out of order. He lived the life we couldn't. He died the death we, did, uh, we didn't. The, 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 uh, let me back up. Died the death. It's going to be a train wreck this morning. Uh, died the death we deserve and rose again in new life. And so if you've not trusted in that, we would love for you to, to do so today. Uh, secondly, it's community that we were made for relationships. God created us as relational people. God himself is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in a relationship for all eternity. And that's the pattern for how we live as people. God created us for relationships. And we believe we grow best when we have relationships that are centered around Jesus. And then lastly, mission. Uh, the, good, the good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. We have received good news, so we go and tell good news about what Jesus has done for us, that he would do that for others by calling them to trust in Jesus. And also our lives have been shaped by him, so we go and love others as Jesus has loved us. Um, a couple of announcements before we jump into the text. Uh, next Sunday, uh, there will not be worship here at Forest Hills Covenant Church. Um, we, our, our church is going on a network retreat. We are, we are a congregation uh, that is a part of four different, uh, there's four different congregations that are a part of a network of churches called City on a Hill. We're going away to New Hampshire next weekend. Uh, but if you're gonna be in town, there will be a worship service in Brookline. And I'll make sure that all that information is online. It's gonna be at 27 Stebbin Street at 10 o'clock. And so I'll make sure that you know about that. But if you show up here, nobody's gonna be here. So, um, so be sure to do that. And then the following week, we will be back here to our regular Sunday morning worship schedule. Uh, as I mentioned last week, Halloween is my favorite holiday because I think it's the one holiday a year that you get to meet all of your neighbors. And so uh, I really wanna encourage you this year to engage your neighbors. Um, we actually put a guide out this week. We'll put it out on social media uh, and a, a way to engage your neighbors on Halloween uh, to build friendships and relationships with people that maybe you uh, wouldn't otherwise meet. And so uh, I really would encourage you to step into that here in a couple of weeks. And then coming up on November 6th, Saturday, November 6th, uh, we are, uh, being, are partaking in a foster care an adoption seminar. And so we all have a really big heart for foster care and adoption. Several people in our church have either adopted or are, are fostering or have fostered. And so we believe that this is something that the entire church plays a part in, whether you're fostering or adopting or hope to one day, or you just want to be a support or, or, or help to somebody who is, we really encourage you to go to that and learn more about how you can be involved with that. You can find all of those events, anything we're doing on our website, coahforesthills.org slash events. 
Again, fill out that connection card in your seat. If you haven't done so already, you can drop it in the box uh, by the back door on the way out. Um, Last week, uh, we continued our series through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians uh, is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus. Uh, We believe that would be a modern day Turkey. And he wrote this letter um, and and we looked at, spent several weeks looking at chapter one. And we talked about how in this letter, in this book, um, Paul is really giving a vision for the type of church that they could be if the gospel really takes root. If there are people who really firmly believe in what Jesus has done for them, this is what God can do in them. As we looked at chapter one and all the blessings that flow from knowing Jesus, that we've been chosen into God's family, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed, uh, we have an inheritance if we trust in Christ. And this is all rooted in the same power that God could raise Jesus from the dead. Last week, we looked at the idea that we were once spiritually dead and that God has made us alive. And when it comes to God, we were, we were not spiritually impaired. Uh, we were not spiritually limited. We were not spiritually sick, but we were spiritually dead and needed new life that only Jesus could provide. That we were once enslaved to sin and needed freedom that only Jesus could give. And we were once condemned and needed a new family, a new relationship to God. And all of this is available to us in Christ and can only be given to us through Christ. We saw last week how God poured out his endless supply of grace and mercy. And just when you think that we've exhausted it, we haven't. He continues to give more and more and more. And this is why the gospel has always been good news. And that word gospel literally means good news. It's always been good news to those who see the depth of their problem. It's always been been good news to the lowly. And this is why when you look at the gospel stories and you look at Jesus's life, there were always people who were looking to Jesus, who were far, seemingly far from God, who were the outcast, uh, the tax collector, who was a lot more than an IRS agent in that time. He was a traitor to his people, um, prostitutes, the lowly. They all found their way to Jesus and they all received grace from Jesus because they realized just how much they needed a savior. They realized that they could not save themselves. But also the gospel is not just good news for people who realize they have a problem. It's good news for people who don't think they do. The gospel is good news for those of us who think we have it all together. And it's good. it shows us that it's good news by showing us that we don't. An objection to Christianity, and maybe not Christianity as completely, but maybe Christianity being the only way is, you know, is it, is it really not enough for me to be a good person? Can, can I not just be a good enough person to have a relationship with God? Like, I, I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm a pretty good guy. I give money to somebody if they need it. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. And behind that question is this, is, is that there has to be something that I can do to get on God's good side. There, maybe that I could be moral enough to have a relationship with him. And I think when we ask this question, there are really kind of two ways we can approach this. We can approach it as somebody who we really do think we're a truly good person. We think we've done some pretty good things. We're moral, we're generous, we're kind. So of course God would want a relationship with me. And then there's some of us who maybe we realize we don't quite have it together, but we're not all that bad. We don't really see Jesus as a savior. We see Jesus as somebody who will kind of just get us over the edge. We're living a a pretty good life and we need just a little bit more to get to our goal. God, if you'll help me, I'll be a better person. God, if you'll step in with me, I will promise you I will live a good life. I don't know if anybody listened to to hip hop in the 90s, but Mob Deep once said, there's no such thing as halfway crooks. 
Anybody remember that song? You're outing yourself if you do. Um, No such thing as halfway Christians. There's no such thing as halfway sinners. We're not people who just need a little bit of help, but we need a savior. We don't need just better rules or a better way to live or a better resolve. We need someone to show us that we cannot please God. See, the solution to immorality is not morality. The solution to immorality is not moralism, that we keep the rules in our own strength and we try really hard and we earn a place before God, but the solution is trusting in the only one who could truly be good enough. See, this is why moralism and the gospel are at odds. Your your ability to be a good person and your need for a savior do not mesh with one another. And so we're gonna look at a couple of, a few differences between moralism and the gospel to help us see how good people actually need a savior. Moralism and the gospel differ in where they start. Moralism and the gospel have different starting places. They stand on different grounds. We see this in verse eight, chapter two, verse eight, for it says, for by grace, you have been saved through Faith, the gospel starts with grace. It stands on the grounds of grace. Outside of God's grace, outside of God giving us something that we do not deserve, we could not have a relationship with God. This is, the word grace literally means unmerited favor, an undeserved gift. But that's not where moralism starts. Moralism doesn't treat grace as a grounds upon which we stand. Moralism treats grace as the destination that we're trying to get to. If grace is truly life with God, that God would give us life with himself, what moralism tries to promise is that if you live a certain way, you can get to the good life. If if you want life with God, but you can get there by being a good person, by, by doing enough good, you can get there by your own efforts. And if I believe and live the right way, then God will give me a reward. Or maybe not even God, maybe it's just the reward of having a good feeling of, of, of being a good person. That if you do the right things, you get the reward of being successful. If you do and say and live the right way, you can get the attention or the affection that you so desire. You can be fulfilled in your heart. If you just do enough, you can have it. And so there's a religious version of moralism and an irreligious or a non-religious version of moralism. The religious version of moralism where we think that we can get to God by our own good works is really easy to see. We, we, we live by a certain set of rules or a, or a certain set of dogma. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up in a different religion where there was kind of a, a pathway that you needed to live. You need to do these 10 things or live by these five rules or these eight standards. And if you do these things, then you are successful. You're living for God. You're, you're in right standing with God. If I follow God and I follow the rules and I do the right things, then I'm gonna be right with God and others. And what's behind relig- religious moralism is this, is that I do and then God will bless me. I do and God will bless me. If I'm good enough, God will have me. And, and if I can just prove myself, I can prove the fact that I should be accepted by God. But there's also a a non-religious version of moralism. You don't even have to be a religious person to live by a set of rules. It is a little bit harder to see, but even if you don't believe in God and you say, I've never been to church in my life, maybe this is your first Sunday and welcome, we're so glad that you're here. You may not feel bound by a set of standards and expectations and rules that other people place on you, but still every single one of us has this internal set of standards and values that we judge other people by. 
this internal set of standards and values that we judge ourselves by. And if you don't believe me, let's, let's give an example of this. Let's say that you really care about the environment. And that's not a bad thing. We should care about the environment. God created the world. We should be good stewards. Let's say you like really care about the environment. Like you recycle, you compost, you, you, don't, you don't drive, you, you pedal your Prius like Fred Flintstone. Like, you know, let, let's say you really care about the environment. What do you do when other people don't? What do, what do you think about them when they don't live up to your set of standards or rules? What happens is we look at that other person and we say, they're, they're not living the good life. They're not loving our planet. They're not being a good person. We look at another person and we think they need to change. They need to get it together. They need to be like me. And we do this with all sorts of things. We can do this with the way that we vote. We can look at another person and say, if you don't vote a certain way, you're not a good person. If you don't care enough about the poor, you're not a good person. If, if you drive a certain way, you are a jerk. If, if you don't eat a certain type of food or if you don't make the same life decisions that I make, then you are not a good person. You're not flourishing. You're not living the good life. We have this internal governor that is constantly telling us implicitly and explicitly who is in and who's out, what is good and what is not, what flourishing looks like and what a suffering life looks like. And what does that sound like? It sounds like religion. It's really irreligion, not non-religion because we're all way, way more religious than we give ourselves credit because we're all created to be worshipers. God made us for himself. And so because we were created to worship, it's not that we stop worshiping, it's that we divert our worship and our attention to something else. We give our lives to something else. See, here, here's what moralism does. Moralism flips Ephesians 2.8 on, on its head. There should be a graphic on the screen for this. Hoping so. If not, Maybe. Imagine there's a graphic with me, okay? Um, the, the, gospel, um, it, it, the gospel says that we're saved by grace through faith and that it leads us to works. It leads us to living a good life. It leads us to living for, for a life for God where we please him. Moralism flips that on its head and it starts with works. It says that if you, I'm saved or I find the good life by works, I trust in that by faith and that that leads to right standing with God or a good Feeling. See, the gospel and moralism start in different places. The gospel starts with God's gift, regardless of what you've done, that you can have and receive a life with God through what Jesus has done for you. But moralism says that you need to get to work and it's based on what you do. But both of these, both the gospel and moralism, whether it's your works or Christ's works in your place, both lead to a type of faith. Every person is a person of faith. The words person of faith often is used for people who go to church or who follow a particular religion. But whether you're trusting in God's grace or your own efforts, you're still trusting in something. We, we still have faith because faith is what you trust in. It's, it's what you rest in. It's where you look to give you peace. And if you're not looking to Jesus to give you peace, you're looking to something. You have faith in something that, that is where life come from, comes from. Tim Keller says that life outside of Jesus Christ means every single one of us is looking around for something to boast in, to rest in, to be proud of, to give ourselves confidence to face life. Everybody is trying to find something that gives you a sense of value, of worth, of strength. Everybody is looking for something. 
As Christians, we are putting our faith in the finished work of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our place. And so our lives are based upon grace, not dependent upon our works, but God's grace for us. What moralism says is that you should trust in what you do. Trust in how you're living is going to be enough to get you to the end goal of whatever you're looking for, whether that's a relationship with God or satisfaction or a relationship with another person. If you just live the right way, you can have enough faith that you are going to get there. And we all do it, whether we're looking for that in achievement, whether we're looking for that in an education and trying to get a better job or get into a better life situation, a better partner. All of us are working and placing our faith in something. And if we're placing our faith in something other than Jesus, it becomes a mad scramble for self-worth, a mad scramble to maintain and build our self-esteem and to maintain and find an identity in something else. Because moralism always demands bigger, it always demands better, it always demands more because you can never be sure that it's enough. How can you possibly know that someone's gonna love you enough? How could you possibly know that getting to that dream career is going to finally fulfill you? How, how do you possibly know? When we give ourselves to moralism and we base our lives on works, it's kind of like a cooking show. My kids love the British Bake Off and all these different cooking shows. Those shows, those shows make me nervous. And they make me nervous because you never know who's gonna win in the end. What happens is they go there and they give them some really random instructions. There's one show, I can't remember the name of it, but they give them a description of what they want. They don't even give them the instructions. And at the end, they hope that their creation tastes good enough and is the right thing and it looks right. And the judges are standing before them and they're waiting there on pins and needles. It's nerve wracking because they have absolutely no idea whether what they've done is good enough. In the same way, we have no clue whether our works are gonna be good enough to get us to God or get us to the end of this life and to be fulfilled. See, we're all trusting in something, but what we trust, how much we trust is not what saves us. Notice verse eight, it doesn't say that we're saved by faith, we're saved through faith. That faith is the conduit of God's grace. Why is that important? because it's not the strength of your faith, but the authenticity of what you have faith in. It's not how hard you believe, but how believable what you believe in actually is. Does anybody, everybody remember Bernie Madoff? To around 2008 or so, um, Bernie Madoff is, you know, he, he leads this Ponzi scheme and you know, defrauds people of millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. There were lots of people who believed in Bernie Madoff. There were lots of people who believed that Bernie Madoff would give them a return on their money. They believed hard. They believed with everything that they had. They believed so much that they gave everything that they had, all of their money, all of their savings, all of their investments to Bernie Madoff. And what happened in the end? He turned out to be a fake. It had nothing to do with how hard they believed, but the fact that he wasn't believable. You can believe something. You can go after something. You can go after it with all of your devotion, but if it's not true and it cannot save you, it will not matter, which is why you cannot be a good person and get to God, no matter how hard you try. Because what is it that God truly wants? He doesn't want our efforts because they're not enough. Only Jesus's are. Just like the verse we read a little while ago, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith, in order to be made right with God 
and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, moralism works. They offer what they can't give. If you, if you work hard enough, you do enough, you be enough, then God will accept you or you'll be happy or you'll be satisfied, you'll be satiated, but they can't guarantee it because they can't assure you of it. In fact, the passage we looked at last week, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, says that no amount of good can make you alive. No amount of good can free you from the enslavement of sin. No amount of good can make you earn your way into God's family. But the gospel says that Jesus did everything necessary for you to have all of those things. And that's the ground upon which you stand. The end of verse eight says, not your own doing, it is the gift of God. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it, which means it's secure in Christ. If it were up to us, we would lose it. But if it's secure in Christ, that cannot be taken away from us. See, when you trust, not in your own ability to believe, but in Jesus who is believable and who he is and what he says he has done, it is secure for you. Tony Evans says, faith is not about how much you believe in what you believe. Faith is about believing that the one you believe in is believable. It means that you can actually have weak faith in a strong savior. You can have weak faith in a strong savior. So for example, this is an old example of faith. There's this, this stool and as I look at this stool, I can look at this stool and I can say, I believe in this stool. And when I say I believe in this stool, that means I believe that I'm gonna sit down on this stool and that this stool is gonna hold me up. Now I can stand over here all day long and say, I believe in that stool, but I don't actually believe in it until I sit down. I can stand over here and firmly say, I believe in that stool, but it's not until I come over here and I sit down on the stool please hold me up, that I demonstrate that I believe in the stool. Now, the thing is, is I could sit on this stool and I could be really nervous as I do it. I could be kind of shaky that it's gonna, it's gonna drop me, but as long as the stool has me, I'm trusting in the stool. It's the same way with faith. We can come to Jesus with weak faith and shaking knees and he is strong and lifts us up. And so my question for you this morning is if you struggle to believe Let's say you've been wrestling with entering into a relationship with Jesus. I wonder if, if it's not that you're having a hard time believing in Jesus, but maybe you're trusting in your ability to believe, the strength of your belief. And what's interesting is there are countless New Testament examples of people coming to Jesus who were just on the struggle bus. The woman at the well who didn't know whether anyone would ever accept her and Jesus meets her with kindness and tenderness and safety the blind, the lame, the weak. And probably my favorite prayer in the entire New Testament is, I believe, help my unbelief. What are you trusting in? There's a simple test to help you with this. What do you desire and think about the most? What do you turn to when you're down? What do you cling to when you're afraid? Anything else that we cling to other than Jesus is sinking sand. So the moralism and the gospel, they start in different places, but they also differ in who gets credit. They differ in who gets credit. They, they treat this so differently because grace, the gospel, deflects glory away from ourselves and moralism absorbs it. Grace deflects glory to God and moralism absorbs glory. I don't, I don't know if anybody, if you were sports fans, but you watch a post-game interview and those are so interesting. Because no one in a post-game interview says, you know, I would just like to thank my right arm today. 
I would like to thank myself and my athletic abilities because if it weren't for me, my teammates would have really been in trouble. No one does that. They say, I would like to thank God. Often they say that. Um, They'd say, I wanna thank my teammates. I wanna thank the coaches. They had a great game plan. We had a great week of practice. They're constantly deflecting the glory away from themselves. Paul makes very clear in this passage who should get the glory. In verse eight, again, he says, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. We've already said that it doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with a good heart or good intentions because God knows our heart. Jeremiah 17, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Romans 3 says that no one pleases God, that no one seeks after him. So if salvation were to start with us, we would never get there. But it starts with God who is gracious. God, God's not gracious because we showed improvement. God's not gracious because we made the first step. He's not gracious because we put our best fo- foot forward or gave it our best shot or showed potential. In fact, verse nine says, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's wholly a gift of God, that God would love us while we're still sinners, that he would love us before we ever loved him. He loved us first. This is so important because we know that we would boast about it. He did this so that, again, no one would boast. If we think we had the slightest bit to do with our salvation, do you know what we would do? We would brag about it. We'd brag about it. We would find a way to take credit. I don't know if any of you have ever played pickup basketball. I used to love to play pickup basketball. And there was always that one guy who hadn't done anything all game. He's a liability on defense. I mean, I don't know why he's out there. And the guy hits a bank shot, the last shot of the game and wins the game. And what's the guy do? He starts running around the court, arms over his head, like he has done everything. That's how we would treat a relationship with God if we were to do even one thing. If it were necessary for us to even do one act, show one little slight bit of contrition, we wouldn't glory in God who did the rest. We would glory in that one little bit that we did. We'd boast in it, we, that's not, but that's not grace. And we see who gets credit in what moralism and the gospel both motivate or what they're motivated by. Moralism is motivated by pride. I can be good enough. I can do enough. I can be smart enough. I can be moral enough or it's motivated, motivated by fear. I better be this way or else. I better be this way or else God's not going to accept me. I better be this way or others are going to reject me. And how much of what we do is because we're afraid of what other people think. But the gospel is motivated by grace. It's motivated by worship. Because what we, once, we, what we, once we realize what a gift we have received in Jesus, that he would go to the cross and pay for our sins with his life, that while we were still yet sinners, he died for us while we were dead. He made us alive when we were enslaved. He set us free when we were condemned. He called us to be God's child that leads us to praise, a heart of gratitude because we see what a gift we've been given him. And that, what this does is it produces faith when we realize that we cannot get to God on our own, but so we cling to Jesus. Who's getting credit in your story? Who's getting credit in your life? This passage is near and dear to me because this is the passage that I heard when I became a Christian. 
I grew up in uh, a, a Christian family, um, but my entire family was based upon uh, was based upon performance. It was based upon being a, a good student, a good athlete, uh, a, a good moral kid. And I believed, and I kind of imported that into my relationship with God. I believed that if I were just good enough, uh, then, then God would love me. And so I went to church every Sunday, but the motivation for me was not the grace of God. The motivation for me was that I need to do enough for God to accept me. As I went through, I was even baptized when I was 10 years old. I you know, walked down the aisle, I did it because all my friends were doing it. And then I went through middle school and high school, basically going through this, this, the fear and pride paradigm, going back and forth, going, okay, I can be a good enough person. And then I'll be afraid because I'd mess it up inevitably. And I'd mess it up and I'd like rededicate my life a thousand times to God I'm, and make these promises, God, I'm gonna do better next time. God, I'm not gonna look at that again. God, I'm not gonna treat that person that way. If you'll just give me another chance. Until one Friday night, I heard these words, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What changed? Who got credit changed? Once I realized that it was not up to me and what I could do, but up to what Jesus had done for me, everything changed. See, you can be a moralistic churchgoer because of what motivates you. If what motivates you to be a good person and go to church on Sunday is guilt or shame and not the grace of God that you've received, you're living under moralism, not the gospel. What motivates you? Is it pride or fear or grace? There's an old evangelism question they used to ask, and it was, you know, if you were to stand before God right now and he were to ask you why he would let you into heaven, what would you say? Any other answer than Jesus gave his life for me is standing on your own efforts. Lastly, moralism and grace differ, or the gospel differ in what they produce. Moralism promises that it's gonna produce grace, that it's gonna produce a life with God and fulfillment, but what it actually does is it produces either self-righteousness or it produces self-loathing. And both of those focus on you because what self-righteousness does is it gives you a gauge for your life that who I am is, is defined by how I'm doing. Who I am is defined by being right. Who I am is defined by being good. And when I get that, I finally find my identity. But that gets rocked when we mess up because self-loathing comes in. And when we feel that we're, what we've hoped in, we've failed at it, it devastates us. And what we think is when we mess up, we say, yeah, I can't believe I did that. The focus is still on us. Works promises to produce the good life by saying that if you do these things, then you're gonna get the good life. If you, if you get a better education, you'll, get, uh, you'll make more money. If you get fit enough, you'll find love. If you uh, do more good than bad, you can work off your guilt and your shame. But the gospel inverts that. The gospel says that it's not works that get you to grace, but the fact that Jesus gave you the life that you need that leads you to live a different way. Jesus gives you life in him and that changes what you do and why you do it and gives you a new identity that who you are in Christ changes what you do and why you do it. John Bloom says that we cannot really be true to ourselves and to our, and until ourselves derive their identity, purpose and destiny from God. We find this new identity, this new purpose, this new destiny through the work of the cross. Jesus saved you from your sin, but he also saved you to something. Verse 10 tells us this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
The word workmanship kind of relates a little bit to last week when we talked about how our lives are to be a display, a work of art that looks and deflects the glory to God. The people would look at our lives, see how we've changed, and they would worship God. But in the same way, here he's calling us his workmanship. This is kind of a, the idea of kind of craftsmanship. If you look at like the way new construction gets thrown up, you know, there's a lot of new construction around here. It tends to be pretty basic and bland and bare. You know, it's, it's everything's thrown up fast and quick and the, the studs in the wall can be 24 inches apart or six inches apart. There's, there's no real handiwork to it. But if you go into an old house and you start looking at the crown molding and you start looking at the detail and the uniqueness of each of these places, that's the type of work that God is doing in us. He's creating a masterpiece and he's setting work before us that only we are called to fulfill. He's doing, he's creating a masterpiece in us. See, Jesus saved you by grace through faith in order to produce good works that you could walk in. And he goes further. He says that we do this because we've been created in Christ Jesus. That word for created is like how the world is created. Not a new, new coat of paint, but a completely new creation. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The context of that, that passage in 2 Corinthians is around the ministry of reconciliation, that God has called a people out of the world to go back into the world as new and changed people to live like Jesus lived. Oftentimes we wonder, why doesn't God just zap us up? Why, why doesn't God just, just kind of, once we're saved, he just gets us out of the world? It's because he wants us to live as renewed people in the world. And a lot of Ephesians, and we're gonna uncover this in chapters three through six, are, are how we're called to live as this new people, to make it on earth like it is in heaven. And it's, it's important for us to see that, that we're not doing things for God. It doesn't say that we do works for God, but that God created works for us or created us for works. This matters because these were prepared before time. They were called to walk in them, which means we are joining God on his mission to take the gospels of the world, to demonstrate and declare the good news of Jesus. See, what happens when we are people who've been saved by Jesus will be people who've been shaped by Jesus. People who look like Jesus and live like Jesus. So what does that mean for us here at City on a Hill? It means we're trying to create a gospel culture. We talk about that a lot, a culture where the gospel is not just something we believe, but it impacts and shapes how we treat each other. That we love one another like Jesus loves us with mercy and grace. That the scorecard we keep is not attendance on a Sunday, but it's how God is moving and shaping someone's life. That we're a repentant people, a dependent people, a gentle people, a generous people, a hospitable people that we're showing and giving grace to one another. But also it redeems and reshapes everything that we do. You're still gonna go to work. You're still gonna have friends. You're still gonna have relationships. You can still care about justice. You can still wanna be a good neighbor. You can still care about the poor. You can care about the environment, but all those things begin to be redeemed and reshaped by the work of Christ. As we wrap up, every single one of us are tempted towards moralism. We're tempted to prove ourselves. We're tempted to earn our way. And here's a few diagnostic questions to help us see if we're trending towards moralism. First question is, what makes me feel better than others when I do it and they don't? 
Secondly, how do I react when suffering or pain enters my life? Because oftentimes we wonder if, I, if I'm a good enough person, I can avoid pain. And lastly, how do I react when someone else gets what I want? All of those shows show ways that we tend and trend toward moralism because we think that we deserve better and more. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, my question for you is where are you drifting towards moralism? Where are you drifting towards works? Remember the grace of God and rest in it. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe this morning you're coming and you've been working your hardest towards a life with God. You've been working your hardest to, to get the most that you can out of life and find satisfaction and joy. I want you to see what Jesus offers that your efforts can't. He offers the steadiness and the sturdiness of his grace. He offers his life for yours. And if you trust in him, you will find the life that he promises. Let's pray. Let's pray.